Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Good Friday, April 22nd, 2011. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, but we're not going to listen to any of that today. Today is Good Friday. Today is the day that we ponder anew. Think back again to Jesus' death on the cross, his passion and his sufferings in our place, and his vicarious penal substitutionary death, which takes away the sin of the world. It's fascinating, amazing good news, and it's for you and it's for me. And so what I'm going to do today, uh, being that it's Good Friday, and as far as I'm concerned, this is the holiday. There's only one greater than this, and that is the resurrection on Easter morning, Easter Sunday. There's only one greater than this. As a result of the importance of today, I'm going to play two things for you without commercial interruption, and I'm not even going to chime in at the end. The first is a uh, Good Friday meditation delivered by Pastor William Swirla of Holy Trinity Lutheran Church in Hacienda Heights, California. The second is a longer sermon uh, presented by uh, Mark Deaver from his Pierced for Our Transgressions series that he uh, did a couple of years ago at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, and the name of it is He Bore Our Sins in His Body on the Tree. It's a, uh, it's a sermon on 1 Peter chapter 2, 21 through 25. I hope that you find both of these uh, both of these to be refreshing for your soul and help you to reverently focus you in on Christ and him crucified for our sins as uh, as Holy Week comes to its climax uh, with Christ's death on the cross and Sunday, his victorious bodily resurrection from the grave, conquering sin, death, and the devil, showing us 
that his sacrifice was accepted by God, proving that he was who he claimed to be, God in human flesh, and all of this was for our sins and for our justification. So with that, here is uh, Pastor William Swirla, and then immediately after that, you'll hear Dr. Mark Deaver. In the name of Jesus, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. In the three holy days preceding Easter, we have come to that Friday, which in the Christian tradition is called Good. Good Friday. A strange name, don't you think, for a day in which your religious leader is crucified? The day that Jesus was unjustly and cruelly nailed to a cross and suffered a horrible death? Good Friday. Some just skip right over it as though it were some unfortunate speed bump on the way to Easter Sunday and the joy of the resurrection. Many would rather avoid the bloody mess altogether, but you must not. You must not because without a Good Friday, there is no Easter Sunday and there is no point. You must look on this one who bore your griefs and carried your sorrows, the one who was stricken, smitten, and afflicted for you, the one whose wounds do justice to your sin, who was crushed by the law's condemnation that hung over your head, whose punishment brings peace with the Father, and in whose wounds you will find your healing. Behold the Lamb, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Nowhere is this more true than with Jesus hanging dead on a cross. Here he is truly the Lamb of God, the sacrifice. In that one solitary act in the darkness between noon and three, the griefs and sorrows of our fallen humanity were borne by the Son of God, Our sin was answered for, the just demands of the law were paid, and we were reconciled to the Father. One time in human history, for all times. One man, for all mankind. He has borne our griefs, he has carried our sorrows. Jesus was the man of sorrows. He was acquainted with our suffering You, my friend, are his burden. He carries you. He carries all of your griefs, your sorrows, all that death has done to you, all that death will do to you, all that others in their sin have done to you, all that you have done to yourself. Jesus bore it all in his own body on the cross. When we see disaster, tragedy, senseless suffering, large-scale loss of life. We are prone to ask with everybody else, where is God in all this? Why doesn't he do something? And the answer comes from the cross, there is God, right there, 
going to the heart of why there is suffering in this world. Where was God during 9-11 when buildings collapsed at the act of terrorists? Where was God in Hurricane Katrina, in the tsunami, in Haiti, and in Chile, and in all the places where there's suffering and death in the world? And why didn't he do something about it? It's tempting to desire an interventionist God, a God who will deflect bullets before they hit innocent bystanders, a God who will eliminate cancer cells before they become tumors, a God who will heal every sickness, cast out every demon, restore every blind eye and faulty limb. But in a world like that, where God micromanages and intervenes in every little thing, there would be no order, no laws of physics, no ordered universe. There would be nothing but seeming randomness as one act was interfered with after another. But God does something entirely different. Instead of micromanaging, he macro-manages our suffering. Instead of doing rehab on a terminally broken cosmos, he does death and resurrection on it. He embodies everything in the body of the Son of God, born of Mary. Together with all the brokenness, the tragedy, the disasters, great and small, And he reconciles everything in this world in that one perfect death of Jesus on the cross and that one word uttered in the darkness, Tetelestai, it is finished. Truly it is finished. He has borne our griefs, your griefs, my griefs, the collected griefs of all of mankind, every death and every loss. It is all accounted for in his death and it's made good knit together into a fabric of beauty as only God can knit. He has carried our sorrows, your sorrows, my sorrows. Every tear shed by humanity in its suffering and pain, Jesus has taken them to himself and bundled them into his death. Our griefs and our sorrows find their end, and they find their meaning in his grief and his sorrow. Behold the Lamb, God's Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. You wouldn't know it by looking at him. He looks like one despised by men and rejected by God. He looks like a loser, someone who has run afoul of religion and the state, and God didn't bother to intervene to rescue him. Stricken, smitten, and afflicted, not us, him. There but by the grace of God goes he for us in our place. As Luther reminded us, when you look at the beatings and the suffering of Jesus on Good Friday, don't blame the Roman government. Don't blame Pontius Pilate. Don't blame the Jewish leaders or the Jewish people. These are but the instruments The cause of Jesus' suffering is your sin, your thoughts, your words, your actions. Your sin is why Jesus had to suffer and endure all of this. Even if you were the only human being on this earth, 
Jesus would still have had to suffer and die to save you. That's what the law calls for. The wages of sin is death. Don't ever think of sin as simply a weakness, a moral failing, a mistake. As so many public confessions these days simply say, I made a mistake. Sin is much more than a mistake. It is an embrace of death instead of life. It is an embrace of self instead of God. It is the embrace of the devil's lie instead of God's word. He was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquities. Those were your hands beating Jesus as they lash out against your fellow man. Those were your words uttered in derision and scorn. The lashes he endured were yours. The death he died was yours. And what's so amazingly graceful is that in this God is reconciled to us his enemies while we were yet enemies. God had promised in the form of a threat to the devil that he would make enmity between the devil and the woman, between the devil's seed and the woman's seed, that through the heel-crushed seed of the woman, God would crush the head of the serpent. It's the foundational promise of the Bible. And it finds its goal and its fulfillment here with Jesus hanging on the cross. He who by a tree once overcame is now by a tree overcome. The violence of the cross means our peace. Again, every act of violence, of inhumanity, every genocide, every act of injustice is answered once and for all in this solitary death of Jesus. There is peace with God. Peace always comes with blood, and this peace comes with the blood of the Lamb shed on the wood of the cross, and delivered to you in the chalice of his supper. Water and blood flowed from the wounded side of Jesus that day, John reports. And that's more than a piece of medical evidence concerning Jesus' death. It reminds us that the source of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper are to be found in the wounded side of the dead Savior. By his wounds you are healed. His wounds are a medicine unlike any other, a medicine of immortality, a medicine of eternal life. Our medicine can only provide a stopgap. It can only put a bandage on death. It cannot cure. Only Jesus, the physician of our souls, can heal us eternally. In his earthly ministry, he healed people as a sign of the coming kingdom. But every healing has as its source his wounds here on the cross. Here the penitent thief finds pardon. Here the guilty one finds acquittal. Here the sick find health. Here the weak find strength. Here in the wounds of Jesus is the ultimate and final cure to what ails us, each of us. His wounded head is the healing of our minds. His wounded back, the healing of our strength and all the blows that we have endured at the hands of others and that we ourselves have administered to others. His wounded hands, the healing of our work. His wounded feet, 
the healing of our walk. His wounded side, the healing of our hearts that were turned away from God and turned against one another. In his wounds are our peace. Peace be with you, Jesus said on that Easter evening when he showed them his wounds, his hands, his feet, his side. Peace be with you, he says to you, with his body and his blood. So where then is God when bad things happen? He is there hanging on the cross, redeeming all things, reconciling all things, making all things new. Why doesn't he do something? He has. It is finished. A good Friday. Very good. In the name of Jesus. Violent, irrational, intolerant, allied to racism and tribalism, and bigotry, invested in ignorance, and hostile to free inquiry, contemptuous of women, and coercive toward children. Organized religion ought to have a great deal on its conscience. That's Christopher Hitchens in the book you may well have heard of just because of the title that he has for it. God is not great. Subtitled, How Religion Poisons Everything. A.C. Grayling also published an aggressively atheistic book last year, modestly titled, Against All Gods. In it, Grayling defines faith as, quote, a commitment to belief contrary to evidence and reason, end of quote. So it's no surprise that he says that he confesses to him the phrase religious think tank has a certain comic quality to it. Grayling charges that most wars and conflicts in the world's history owe themselves directly or indirectly to religion. By their fruits we are told we shall know them. A simple test of the relative merits of science and religion is to compare lighting your house at night by prayer or electricity. Well, Hitchens and Grayling's books are part of a wave of new public insults to Christianity. There have been books after books published recently from Richard Dawkins, The God Delusion, to Sam Harris's Letter to a Christian Nation, The bookstores are full of irreligion. There's even a new intriguingly religious atheistic book. Andre Comte-Sponville's The Little Book of Atheist Spirituality. And, And friend, these books are selling. Twice yesterday when I went to Amazon and simply typed in the word God, the first two books that came up were Christopher Hitchens' God is Not Great, And Richard Dawkins, The God Delusion. Now that's a bit like typing in Obama and getting McCain. I mean, how, how is it that when I type in God, the main thing that comes up, the first things, are these anti God books? Well, like, it's because they're selling. In fact, there have been so many atheistic books published recently that it's now being called a movement and named 
the new atheism. Well, I have to tell you, as a former agnostic, I feel the weight of some of the criticisms of religion. But I do have to say there's nothing new about these criticisms. Atheism, yes. New, not at all. Over 200 years ago, Thomas Paine was making a similar assault on Christianity. Whence arose all the horrid assassinations of whole nations, of men, women, and infants, with which the Bible is filled, and the bloody persecutions and tortures unto death, and religious wars that since that time have laid Europe in blood and ashes? Whence arose they but from this impious thing called religion, and this monstrous belief that God has spoken to man? Christian, you and I may believe that our message is universally true, but we must know that our message is not universally accepted. And it never has been. The theme of the suffering of the godly in this fallen world is found throughout the Bible. So the psalmist refers to the many troubles that the righteous have. Joseph is thrown in the pit and Jeremiah in the well. And then, of course, there's Jesus. Christ himself suffered. And he said to his first disciples, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. This is why the world hates you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. In this world, you will have trouble. So Paul taught the early Christians, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Paul wrote to the Philippians that he desired to share in the sufferings of Christ. And to Timothy, that everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The writer to the Hebrews wrote encouraging these early Christians when they were facing insult and opposition and reminded them that Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Peter also talked about that in his first letter. Our passage for study this morning is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 25. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 25. You'll find that on page 1201 in the Bibles provided in the main hall, page 1201. And you'll find that on page 1272 in the Bibles provided over here in the main hall, page 1272. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 25. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. 
When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now, to understand this passage, we have to look at the context, as we so often do. Peter refers there, you see, in verse 21 to this. And friends, if you're, if you're not used to listening to a sermon from the Bible, let me advise you, just keep the copy of the Bible that you have there open. Keep looking down, because we'll be referring to the text throughout the whole thing, and that will help a long sermon probably seem slightly less long. All right? So if you see that word this there in verse 21, well, what is, what is this? What's he referring to? Well, look up at verse 19. It is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. Peter is talking about enduring and really continuing to endure and continuing to do good even in the face of insults, trials, and mockery for being a Christian. This is what Peter's whole letter is about. When you look through it, you begin to see more clearly the situation that that he's addressing, the situation that these early Christians were facing. He's addressing what we might call today lesser persecutions. We don't know that in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, where this was written to, we don't know that they were at that time being killed for being Christians. But they were certainly facing suffering. They were certainly facing false accusations. They were certainly facing insults. And that's what Peter writes about. If you look back through the book, you'll see this. Back in chapter 1, you start putting the puzzle pieces together, it becomes pretty clear. Look at verse 6, chapter 1. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Then look down in chapter 2, verse 4. Look how Peter describes Jesus here. He says, as you come to him, the living stone... Rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. See, that's the pattern Peter is laying out for Christians throughout this letter. Rejected by man, but chosen by God and precious to him. So look in chapter 2 down at verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And then, of course, we have the passage about bearing up under suffering for doing good and our own passage. But he continues with this same theme. Look over in chapter 3 at verse 9. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. 
but with blessing, because to this you were called. Or then down in verse 17. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Or then over in chapter 4, verse 12. Chapter 4, it's the big number. Verse 12, that's the small number after it. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. And then down in verse 19. So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. And then look in chapter 5, verse 6. Chapter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Well, friends, I, I've just read you a lot of the book of First Peter. And what you see is a, a pretty clear theme in this early Christian letter. The theme is doing good in spite of persecution. Doing good in spite of persecution. The problem they were facing clearly was this. As Christians, how do we deal with evil? And, and particularly our own sinful, self-serving desires. And our desires maybe especially for retribution. When we're wronged. How do we deal with suffering for doing good? Especially, it seems, insult, rejection, false accusations. Not just from books published by prominent atheists that we don't know personally, but from friends at the office or in your neighborhood or even from those you love in your family. And what we find in our passage is that at the, at the very center of our call to live for righteousness is the call to emulate Christ's life of entrusting rather than retaliation. We are called to emulate Christ's life of entrusting rather than retaliation. As we were thinking of a few weeks ago, here again we see ethical implications from Jesus' death as our substitute, laying down his life for the benefit of others. Peter presents Jesus as the answer to their problems. And what we learn is that in Jesus' 
life and death, he was doing something unique. But we also see that Jesus was doing something that was to be exemplary, typical of his followers. And those are the two parts of our study this morning, really Christ's unique life and Christ's exemplary life or Christ's typical life. Christ's unique life and his typical life. First, Christ's unique life, dying on the cross as our substitute. But second, Christ's exemplary life or, or typical life, living through suffering as our example. And I like using the word typical, you know, bringing it into like type, typical, it's a type. It's, our life is supposed to be like his life's with a type. Because when we think of typical, we think of like, ah, oh, just run to the mill, doesn't matter. And I'm trying to press you on that point and say that this kind of life is supposed to be absolutely typical among us. So Christ's typical life and Christ's unique life. And I pray as we consider this together that we will believe in God and his love for us in Christ and that we will grow in our trust of him. First, then, let's consider Christ's unique life. Christ's unique life. Dying on the cross as our substitute. And we have to begin this by considering Christ's unique person. So if you're taking notes, and I know a lot of you are, you're going to have three subpoints. okay? This is A. This is Christ's unique person. Jesus Christ was sinless. That's what we see here in verse 22. Look at verse 22. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. Peter refers to Isaiah's statement about the servant in Isaiah 53, 9, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And Peter tells us that Jesus committed no sin. Now, friends, think about that. That is an extraordinary statement. Peter is saying that Jesus committed no sins. Not one in his life. Judas, after betraying Jesus, declared that he had betrayed an innocent man. Pilate, too, after he had examined Jesus, declared Jesus to be innocent. Jesus himself had said in John chapter 8, I always do what pleases God. And then he challenges the crowd, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? John said of Jesus that in him is no sin. And Paul referred to Jesus as him who had no sin. And the writer to the Hebrews said about Jesus, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Well, Peter here too adds his testimony to Jesus' unique sinlessness. And Peter knew Jesus as well as anybody did. So Jesus is not like Moses or Gandhi or Lincoln or Socrates in this. We admire a frank admission of guilt. That helps us trust a person. When we don't have that frank admission of guilt, we tend not to trust the person. And we know that from experience with others, and frankly, we know that from ourselves, if we're honest. But Jesus is not like that. Christ did not present himself like that. Some people mistakenly think that to err is human, you know, to forgive is divine. Well, they're right on the forgiveness part. But the fact that to err is human, that is that that sin is essential 
to being truly human because we're limited and therefore we must sin. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, it teaches that the first people, Adam and Eve, were made without sin. And it teaches us that Christians will eventually live without sin. We sang in There is a Happy Land at the beginning of the service. They're from sin and sorrow free. We imagine ourselves outlasting sin. Friend, if you're here and you're a Christian, you will live longer than your sin. You will live to know a time when you will experience humanity that is not perverted by sin. So when you read this about Christ, you should in no way think that this diminishes his humanity. Jesus Christ was fully human. You could argue in one sense even more fully because he was without sin. Now, if you're not very familiar with Christianity, I want to make sure I explain this correctly for you. Because this may be a little confusing. The Bible teaches that everyone in the world sins and keeps on sinning. That is the Christian understanding of moral evil in this world. That's why we are not surprised by it. So when a tragedy happens to our nation, like 9-11, Christians are not surprised. We are saddened. But we're not surprised because, frankly, we read this in Scripture and we read this in our own hearts. We understand something of the sinfulness of humanity. Now, this is where I've had interesting conversations with friends who are atheists. Atheists like Hitchens and Dawkins may, if they're honest, admit the strange pervasiveness of moral evil. But, frankly, they have no explanation for it. It's like flipping a coin six billion times, and it always comes up tails. I think something's going on there. It it could be weighted, perhaps. I'm not surprised by it. You see, as, as Christians, we read the Bible's explanation. That is that we are, to use our theological language, fallen. Fallen away from God. Fallen in Adam. And that is God declared the first man to be in a special relationship with us. He would decide for all of us. And since his faithful decision, uh, we've all been not unhappy conscripts. Oh, I really don't want to sin, but Adam's making me sin. No, no, we have been happy rebels against God. And I think theologically our assumption is, if you don't like somebody else picking for you, we would say, okay, we think if you were put in the same position, you would have done the same thing. We don't think God chose the bad one from the human race. You know, Adam sinned. And if there is anyone that you don't want to offend, it's God. And sin is offending God. Sin is acting against God. And that is what we have all done. And we continue to desire to do and to do. And if there's anyone in God's universe that you don't want to have opposed to you, it's God. But Jesus Christ, though fully human, was also fully God, and he never sinned against his heavenly Father. Now, friends, we we don't have a sinless church. We can't display for you the sinlessness of Christ in that sense. But we have a sinless Savior. We have one who has lived without sin. We love and serve and know one who is completely good, 
and moral and virtuous and right and noble and kind and holy and compassionate and delightful and powerful and able and knowledgeable and reliable and trustworthy and fair and glorious. And he is the one around whom we are all united. Our unique, sinless Savior, the God-man, Jesus Christ. So that's what we have to see first in this passage. He is a unique person. Because Jesus Christ was so unique in his person, sinless, this made possible his unique work. All right, there would be your B. His unique work. Jesus suffered as a substitute. You see that there, if you look in verse 21, because Christ suffered for you. Spelled out even a little more fully in verse 24, where we read that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. This past Wednesday, a prominent public official announced his resignation from office. He began his statement by saying, In the past few days, I've begun to atone for my private failings. Well, we all know what he meant. Uh, He was trying to make it up to his wife. He was trying to regain her trust and love, though he had so grievously and publicly abused it and her. Of course, strictly speaking, he can't atone for his sins. What what I mean is this. Think about it. He can't go back and undo those actions. Even if he could, he can't go back and undo the decisions that led to those actions. Let alone the desires that he had that led to the decisions that led to the actions. He's already done them. And no amount of other good he may subsequently do, even if it were to morally outweigh his transgressions in, in your mind or mine, would ever expunge them. They've been done. He has sinned against his wife. He has sinned against the other woman or women, his children, the women's families, perhaps future spouses, the people who elected him, his friends. I could go on and on. And, and we're still only on the more minor side. I haven't even mentioned the fact that his sin was fundamentally against God. And is against the one who gave him life and who will judge him. God is the one who invented people and sexuality and marriage and parenthood and authority. And all of those in themselves reflect God in his goodness and his holiness and his creativity. And all this and more he has sinned against. He has sinned against God personally in a way which God detests. And it isn't just this sin. All the sins which he has committed have treason and betrayal and ingratitude and rebellion and rejection of people and supremely of God himself tied up in them. And it's not just his sins that are like that or sexual sins that are like that. So too do all 
of our sins. Friends, this is the nature of sin. To be against God personally and directly. And that is why none of us can ever atone for our own sins. It is beyond our capacity. It is beyond our ability. But Peter here reminds these troubled early Christians of the one who uniquely was able to atone for our sins because he had no sins to die for himself. And he did. He did die to atone for our sins. Throughout this passage, you can tell that Peter has learned from his rabbi, Jesus, because he has that servant song of Isaiah 53 in the background. These beautiful verses that we studied a few months ago. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many. Friend, atoning is not your job or mine. It's the job of our perfect Savior, the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. The very fact that Peter used the word he did here in verse 24 for tree, instead of using a word that we would think of as cross, I think means that he is recalling to their mind the statement of the law that Michael mentioned last week from Deuteronomy 21, that anyone who hangs on a tree is under God's curse. That is, anyone who falls under that capital punishment for their serious sin is under God's curse. And that's why so many Jews, after Jesus was crucified, were confident that he could never be the Messiah because he was clearly cursed of God, according to the law. Oh, but friends, that's staring right at it and missing it. Yes, he was cursed. But he was cursed not because he had ever sinned. He was cursed for our sins. Because we deserve that curse. That's why he was cursed. He was cursed for us. He endured God's wrath for us, for our sins. He was made sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. He bore the curse we earned. Friends, this is the basic message of Christianity. This is, this is the good news that we have. That though we have lived in such a way that we deserve God's curse, so that's not just the person you don't like. That's not just how you used to live. No, that's you this week. Okay? You have lived in such a way as to deserve God's curse. I say that not because I know everything you've done, but because I know what Scripture teaches. And this is the message of Christianity. That we have lived in such a way, all of us, that we deserve God's curse. And God would be entirely just to let us be forever under His curse. But in His amazing love, the eternal Son of God came and took on flesh. And He lived a sinless life. The life that you and I should have lived. And yet he died the death we deserve. Taking on the punishment for our sins because of God's love for us. And God raised him from the dead to show that he accepted this sacrifice. That it was effective and he calls us now to repent of our sins and to trust in Christ. And so we will be given a new life. Forgiveness. Fellowship restored with our Heavenly Father forever. Friends, this is the substitution that we've been talking about all through this series, ever since Christmas. 
Do you see something of God's grace to us in this? Of his, of his kindness? Of how marvelous he is being towards us? Praise God for this unique work that Jesus Christ did for us. And this unique work done by a unique person had a unique result. That would be C. A unique result. It worked. The death of the sinless Son of God actually atoned for our sin. This is good news. This is somebody calling you when you are financially distressed and telling you someone just paid your mortgage. This is you finding out that something you assumed could never happen has happened. And it is tremendous news. It worked. The death of the sinless Son of God actually atoned for our sins. His death brought us healing. That's what Peter is saying here in this passage. In verse 24, look at that phrase. He says, by his wounds you have been healed. This too echoes Isaiah 53. And not only have we been healed, but we're also kept safe. Look at verse 25. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And again, we think of that portion of Isaiah 53. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Peter, you see, is, is recounting their conversion. That's what he's doing here. The word returned there in verse 25 could be translated turned or converted. And that's what they've done. That's what has happened to them. They have turned away from the sin that once dominated their lives. And in turning away from that sin, they have turned to God. Really, verses 24 and 25 here make up a wonderfully comprehensive presentation. It presents our problem. We were straying from God. We went away from him. And the solution. We were healed by Christ's wounds, as he says here in verse 24. The relationship that was broken has been restored. We have been returned, converted, made safe, saved. But so often we are resistant to that kind of solution. Friend, I know. I, I was an agnostic. I, I would make rationales for how I lived and why. We love excuses for our actions more than changing them, don't we? If we're honest. It's like the guy I recently read of who argued at his trial, my car's speedometer wasn't working. If it were, then the cop's radar surely wasn't. <laughs> but in any case, I was driving at the average pace of traffic. I certainly wasn't speeding. But if I were, I do sincerely apologize. And you can understand, I was rushing to a funeral. My friend, God sees the excuse before you even have time to make it up. And he sees right through it. He knows the truth. Aren't you sick of being alienated from God, being estranged from him? Friend, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, consider this. Have you sinned against God? Have you sinned against God? If you don't think you have, as a professional religious person, my advice to you would be, pray to God and simply ask Him to show you the truth about that thought that you have about yourself. 
But let's say that you're here as a Christian or as a non-Christian, and you think that you have sinned against God. Because I have, I have many friends who aren't Christians who do believe in God and do think they've sinned against Him. I guess my question to you is, what will you do with your sin? What will you do with your sin? Friend, you need a Savior. And that's who Jesus Christ is. There's no government solution for this problem, not even in Washington. There's nothing we can promise or even pass and fund. For our sins, we need the only Savior there is, the sinless Christ who died as a substitute for all those who would ever repent of their sins and trust in Him. You know, in our congregation, it's the elders that are the special representatives of our shepherd and guardian. Peter, if you look over in chapter 5, exhorts the elders there in verse 2, be shepherds. Same word he's just used of the Lord Jesus earlier. Now here it says, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. Serving as overseers. So you see, in the ministry in this church of the elders, with authority and love together, you see a picture of God's own radical service to us. I confess it's a dim picture, but it is nonetheless really a picture of God's radical service to us in Jesus Christ. You know, this has been the point Satan has attacked ever since the fall. He's denied that authority and love can go together. You can't tell me you love me and tell me no at the same time. That's the essence of our sin, of our rebellion. And so in all the structures of authority we are involved in, whether it's in society or in our work or at home, we are involved in picturing the way God has called us to relate to him. In the church, the elders have that kind of authority. And they are to use it with that kind of wisdom and love for the benefit of those whom they have authority over. Pray for us in this. Pray that we would use this well, that we would depict this well. Pray that none of us among the elders or in the other structures of authority, all of us are involved in our lives. Pray that none of us would abuse authority. It is a terrible blasphemy against God to abuse authority for selfish ends. Because authority is is a very tender point in our lives. And it is meant to teach us to trust. And for our good. And our sinful natures don't want to believe that's ever the case. And so we rebel against it. So that's why we must pray especially for those in authority. That we not abuse that authority that God gives us. Pray for parents in the congregation. Pray that we would be good under shepherds during the time the Lord entrusts to us small ones. And then let's pray that they would grow up to do a better job than we've done in being under shepherds of those the Lord may entrust to them. And let's thank God for the loving authorities he has put in our lives. For every picture we can see of what God is like in this fallen world. Thank God, my Christian brother and sister, that God has healed us. That he has paid such a high price to heal us. How he must love us. If he has healed us and healed us like this, he has has turned us, he has converted us from our rebellion against him to loving regard for him and his authority in our lives. Friends, if God has so loved us, we can be confident of his kindness and compassion as the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Christ has uniquely loved us. The unique Christ has loved us uniquely with these unique results. But Peter tells us here that Christ's life was not only unique, but that it was typical. This is the second half. Christ's life was typical. 
living through suffering as our example. He intended his life to be typical, exemplary. We see this in verse 21. Look at verse 21. Leaving you an example. And that word he uses for example there is like the little things they used to have up when I was in grade school around the, above the chalkboards that would have the very nicely you know, written letters so you could learn how to read them. That's exactly the word in the Greek that's used. It, it's, it's a model that we are to trace, to follow, to learn how to do something. That's what Jesus' life is for the Christian. It's a life that we are to follow, to learn how to live a truly, fully human life. Now, how are Jesus' sufferings an example? As it says here in verse 21, haven't we just said that his sufferings were unique? They were unique in their effect. But they were also a model and an example. And I think that may be why Peter here in verse 21 doesn't say death, but he says sufferings. Because he means to include all that led up to his death, because Jesus' followers would face the same kind of opposition Jesus faced. Now, some of you may be surprised to hear such talk of Jesus as our example in a series of sermons on substitutionary atonement. There is, in fact, uh, what is sometimes called another whole theory of the atonement that is named the example or the moral example theory of the atonement. And it is, as you can tell by its name, a theory that emphasizes the effect of Jesus' death by our imitating his self-sacrificial love. But friend, the moral example theory of the atonement by itself, and it is simply that we're to follow his example of self-sacrificing love, that is the theory, that that's what the cross was to do, to teach us that. That theory by itself is incomplete and even false. In order for Christ to be a good example, his death must accomplish something. Or else it's, it's no more than an example of a pointless death. The cross can only be a good example, a moral example, if we believe that his death is substitutionary, that it has accomplished something. So when we accept Christ's death as one that he himself uniquely did not deserve because he hadn't sinned, but one which he himself uniquely accepted for us as our substitute for, for the punishment that we deserve for our sins, then he is an example of someone whose self-sacrificing love we can follow as we give ourselves up for purposes of loving others. So does the New Testament speak of Christ's death using language other than substitution? Certainly. Certainly it does. Does any of the other language that the New Testament used for the death of Christ make sense apart from Christ dying as our substitute? Certainly not. Certainly not. Here we are called to follow Christ's example in being willing to suffer for doing good. Peter writes there in verse 21, to this you were called. It is part of your vocation as a Christian that you will suffer for doing good. Don't be surprised by it. That's what he's saying here in verse 21 at the end, that you should follow in his steps. Jesus suffered for doing good, says Peter, and so will you if you follow him. So, friends, this is not advanced Christianity where we're getting into the radiant glow of martyrs. No, this is 101. This is you and me claiming to follow Jesus. Well, then we will suffer for doing good. Do not be surprised, Peter says a little bit later, at the fiery trial you're now experiencing. As if something strange were happening to you. 
suffering for doing good is not strange to Christians. It may again sadden us. It may cause a worldly fear in us. But it's not strange. It's not unexpected. It's not a signpost that we're going the wrong way. It's a signpost that we're actually going the right way. That we're actually following Jesus. It's interesting when you consider who's saying this too. This is Peter. Do you remember when Peter first confessed Jesus as the Messiah? Jesus said he was going to suffer. Peter rebuked him for saying he was going to suffer. He wouldn't hear of it. He didn't think it was appropriate. And then, of course, when Peter himself, not long later, faced some suffering, that is, three different people said, hey, do you know this one who's been arrested, who's being tried? Peter denied it in order to avoid suffering. This is the one who's saying this. Peter, who knew the depths of cowardice, who knew what it meant to fear man more than God. Peter's the one who's come to learn what it means to fear God more than man. Now, years later, along with this image of the child tracing out the shapes there, that word example, figures and letters, we have this word here, follow, in his steps, which would evoke disciples, you know, walking along behind the rabbi, walking in his way, sharing his destination, sharing his end. That's what Peter presents here is a Christian. And Peter can remember how he hadn't done that and how he now must do that and how we Christians must. Jesus Christ is the example for all Christians. All kinds of Christians have followed him. And the important fact about his disciples is not that they're old or that they're from Iran or that they have German heritage or that they're female or that they're engaged or that they're young parents. It's not their ethnicity, their gender, or their age. It's that they are following Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I pray that God will help you follow Christ wherever he leads you. Through a difficult work situation, a challenging family situation, a changing church. We are to follow him. And we do that as a church. And as we do, we display the glory of God. Especially as he leads us through hard times. Well, we've noticed that Peter tells us that Christ modeled the typical Christian response to suffering. But I want us to go on and note two additional things about this typical response. Jesus modeled this negatively and positively. That is, we're to follow his example of what Jesus didn't do and of what he did do. First, negatively, you see there's no retaliation. When the suffering comes that you don't deserve, as a Christian, there is... No retaliation. Look at verse 23. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Again, if you've been reading Isaiah 53, you know that's in the background there. Again, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. My Christian brothers and sisters, does such talk of being insulted for being a Christian, even suffering for being a Christian, seem remote to you? Does it seem like language is appropriate for Christians maybe to consider who are working in closed countries? Well, it's been four years ago now that the Canadian Customs and Revenue Agency asked the Roman Catholic Bishop Fred Henry of Calgary to remove a pastoral letter from his diocese, his diocese website. Or 
he was instructed, risk losing their income tax-exempt status. Officials from the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada and the Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops were invited to Ottawa to discuss updated guidelines for charities and political activity and were told that their member churches, churches like ours, should not speak out on an explicitly partisan issue during election campaigns. Explicitly partisan issues. Maybe like same-sex marriage. Friends, the Bible is full of people who have been persecuted for doing what is right. And they don't always respond correctly. So even Moses, when he was provoked, the, the meekest man in the world, we're told, when he was provoked, he reviled but not Jesus. Jesus was sinless, and his is the example we are to follow in this. Have you considered his example of silent endurance? I read all through the, the gospel passages yesterday where Jesus is tried by the chief priests and Pilate, and it is striking how he, who would be so able to retaliate, did not. Before the high priest, Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. They spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear how many things they're accusing you of? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the government. The abuse just continued. And so did his silence. Even in the most severe suffering, Christ did not retaliate. Peter tells the Christians here in 1 Peter 2, verse 24, that Christ died on the cross so that we would die to sins, and not least among those sins would be your desire and mine for retaliation. As Paul teaches us in Romans 6, we have died to the dominating power of sin. We do not have to respond to evil with evil. Friend, as I was thinking about this yesterday, I was thinking of you. If, if you're not a Christian, how do you deal with this? I understand how I, as a Christian, can deal with injustices that are done toward me. But how do you deal with bitterness toward somebody? With those memories, whether... Years old or only hours old. How do you deal with that confident knowledge that you have been wronged? What do you do with that sense of having been wronged? My Christian friends, I don't, I don't want us to misunderstand these instructions. There is nothing wrong with being a policeman or a judge because we're not acting in a personal capacity. It is not wrong to press charges against a criminal, especially for the good order and safety of society. But you, as a Christian, must not personally retaliate. And more than that, you must forgive. In your job, in your family, even here at church, wonderful place for conflict. You must follow the example of Christ and not retaliate. I, I was reading this part to Jeff Chang last night, and I read that, and... Jeff observed, yeah, 
Because Jesus didn't retaliate against us. Friends, we have wronged Him. And He has not retaliated against us. This is the example we are to follow. Now, I don't know about you, but even if I wanted out of time to end the sermon at that point, I've got to think, how can we possibly obey this? How can we do this? I mean, is is the Christian way to ignore justice in the name of forgiveness? No. No, we're called not to an ignoring of justice, but rather to realize that we're not competent to administer it. It is not personally within our ability to administer the justice that's needed. This is why the Lord of old said to Israel, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And that's what Paul quotes in Romans 12 when he's telling the Roman Christians, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. So we Christians don't retaliate. We don't take revenge, not because we're necessarily pacifists, though some Christians are, not because we are morally indifferent, but because positive we are following the way of Christ. We are doing what Christ did. Look at what Peter tells us Christ did positively in verse 23. He trusted God. Look again at verse 23. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. The himself here is not exactly in the original, though I think it is implied. Certainly in going to the cross, Jesus was entrusting himself to God. We, we see that in the Garden of Gethsemane, don't we? But also, in, an, in a different sense, Jesus entrusted those injuring him. The, the whole situation and the outcome, all to God. Oh, my friend, who else would you trust? Who is better for you to trust than this God? You realize that Christ's meekness here did not come from his self-doubts or uncertainty. It came from his strong confidence in his heavenly Father's purposes and powers. So the answer to being unjustly treated isn't the self-centered answer of expressing my anger, getting it off my chest. And it's not the self-centered answer of stoically suppressing my anger, holding it down. No, I think the answer here that we Christians should give to being unjustly treated is to deeply trust God. Because He is good. And He is utterly worthy of our most complete trust. He sees and knows everything. No person, no plan, No combination of circumstances that in your mind would be ideal and would really fix the problem just exactly right. None of those things is as worthy of trust as is this God. He is worthy of your trust with any trial or suffering or persecution you are currently considering. Better than your own wit can figure out. We can trust God to judge sin and evil. God's judgment for every sin ever committed falls either on the sinner eternally or on Christ on the cross. He will issue his sovereign verdict and it will prevail. 
You know, I, I love the picture of the aged Apostle John. And when he's persecuted by the Roman Empire, he's an old man and he's put on the stony island of Patmos in the middle of the Aegean, away from his flock that he had shepherded for so long. What does he do? Does he capitulate in anxiety? Now, God inspires the book of Revelation, and that aged apostle roars at the Roman Empire. And he puts the empire on notice that it will be judged by the sovereign God, who is good. His confidence was not in how he could figure out a way to get off the island of Patmos. His confidence was in the sovereign God who would do right by all. At the center and end of history is the throne of God. Brothers and sisters, you need to know this personally. I I can tell you that in the most difficult things I've ever been called to deal with in my own life, uh, the way I have dealt with them and gotten through them is by just going right to the throne at the end and saying, you know, it ends up really, really good. And then just backing up from there. I might not see how we get from this current situation that I'm in that causes such pain to that, but I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it does. So I'm just going to import my joy from there. I am confident of what it's going to be like for all eternity in Christ. So I'm just going to go borrow a little of that for today and use that to help me walk through whatever this day is that he's calling me to live. This is the only way we can obey this command that he gives us here in verse 24 to live for righteousness. It is by so trusting God. This is why we can share the gospel with people who are hostile to it or or even we can plan to give our lives away in ways this world will neither appreciate nor even understand. So, my non-Christian friend, back to you for a moment. This is how, as Christians, we understand that we can exercise mercy and patience even when we are the victims of extreme injustice. I've seen this in stunning ways in the, the black African community in South Africa. Uh, toward the very Afrikaans and white Anglo Christians that oppressed them, and sometimes in the, quoting the Bible, I have seen this amazing forgiveness. Is there forgiveness because they're indifferent to justice? No. No, it's because they humbly know that they cannot finally mete out all the justice that is needed. That is the business of God. It is our business to follow the way of Christ. This is how we as Christians can experience injustice and yet show mercy and patience without being indifferent. We're confident that God will ultimately sort it out. But again, my friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I wonder, how do you show mercy and patience without indulging a kind of indifference to injustice? I don't have an answer for you. It's just a question I'm asking. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I'll be at the door at the back in just a few minutes. I'd love to talk to you about that. My brothers and sisters here who are Christians, follow the example of Christ. Trust God. Don't retaliate. Pray that God help our congregation to be typified by such living and breathing trust in God. Jesus is a type, a model, an example of this for us. And we are his people and we should look like it. So we should now really conclude. Which, again, if you're a visitor, means I'm now beginning the conclusion. I love what John Bunyan himself imprisoned for 12 years, said, I love what he said about the persecutions we face as Christians. Persecution of the godly was of God never intended for their destruction, but for their glory.
and to make them shine the more when they are beyond this valley of the shadow of death. Do you see how confidence in this leads us to live different lives as Christians? I love the example. It's become well known in recent years. I'm glad of it. Of Adoniram Judson who wrote to his beloved father, wrote to John Heseltine of his beloved Nancy to ask for her hand and how frank he was. I quote just a section of that letter. The young Adoniram writes, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring and to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this? For the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you. For the sake of perishing immortal souls. For the sake of Zion and the glory of God. Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory. With a crown of righteousness brightened with the acclamations of praise. Which shall redound to her savior from heathens saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. Degradation, insult, persecution. And perhaps a violent death. Was Judson being melodramatic? No, friends. That's what some whom we know and love have experienced even in these last few months. And Peter himself faced this. Tradition tells us that Peter himself finally suffered and died for his faith in Christ. But don't misunderstand. It was nothing heroic that Peter did that caused God to accept him. We so often look for our own attempts at heroic, God-obliging obediences. But imagine how such attempts at self-justification must look from God's perspective. Can you imagine your five-year-old son coming up to you with a list of reasons why you should feed and clothe him? Friends, we love our children because they're children and because they're ours. It's just as ridiculous for us to come to God with a list of our obediences, our good actions, even our martyrdom, as the basis for why he should love us and care for us. That's ridiculous. No, friends, brothers and sisters, he loves us because we are in Christ. Not because of anything we do. There is no love of God to be earned by us. There is no love of God to be earned By us. Christ has done this for us. By his wounds, you have been healed. Do you see, friends, particularly if you've been in this series of studies, do you see the ancient images coming to their fulfillment? The servant suffering for us. The goat forsaken for us. The lamb Slain for us. When we had alienated ourselves from God, he brought us back by his own life of perfect trust in God. And his submitting himself to death, even death on a cross, to bear our sins away. Let's pray.
Oh God, if we did not know something of you through the Lord Jesus Christ, this news that our sins have been borne away would be too good for us to believe. We feel the weight of our sins. We understand from your word that they are all against you supremely. And so, Lord, our hearts leap for joy at this news that they have been borne away in the Lord Jesus Christ by his wounds, by his bearing them on the tree for us. Oh God, we pray that for our good and your glory, you would grow our trust in you. Help us to recline ourselves in your love and to live counting on your perfect faithfulness. We ask for your praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.